Hey, this is the last coffee house, and we are talking about Sam Harris reading list today. Finally, getting another one of those, and we are. This is number nine. We've done eight so far, and sorry, this I've been reading a whole bunch of other stuff, so it's been a, a been difficult to get back to the Sam Harris ones, but I'm I'm very looking forward to it. Some of the ones that are coming up are going to be amazing. I can already tell, so I'm very much looking forward to those. This one because it was like in the order of popularity, so it had all Richard Dawkins books up at the top, but this one is. The Blind Watchmaker by Richard Dawkins. Now, obviously, science and religion have had a, a pretty hefty, persistent conflict for a while now. And this is notwithstanding the shockingly inept concept introduced by Stephen Jay Gould of Noma, the non-overlapping magisteria idea that science and religion deal with two separate domains of human inquiry so they don't overlap. It's absolutely ridiculous, but one place they definitely overlap is when it comes to explaining the origin of the diversity of organisms on Earth. That's definitely an overlap. So, on the one hand, you've got science with Darwin, and on the other hand, you've got, you know, magic with religion. Now, I'm definitely in a space, I... (laughs) I feel so much less inclined to denigrate religion nowadays. Just given the tenor of the conversations nowadays, I I definitely don't want to, I feel like I don't want to denigrate religion. Uh, Here's giving me a little bit of an opportunity, but definitely holding back. It comes to that. Published in 1986, subheading is Why the Evidence for Evolution Reveals a Universe Without Design. And the title, of course, comes from William Paley's analogy. I'll call it an analogy. (laughs) He made about the watch in the sand. So, what is the book? Contents of the book. I don't have a whole lot here. He talks about complexity without design, obviously. That's kind of the overarching idea. It goes into the eye and the evolution of the eye. And I find this this fascinating uh, the way that the eye developed because it's something that's makes perfect sense it's not super i mean it's really complex but it's not overly complex to the point where we wouldn't be able to understand it with our feeble primate brains and there are examples in nature of the intermediate stages for organisms that didn't have the selection pressures that caused them to keep on going down the line although obviously it's not there's not a goal in mind but so it would start out with the light sensitive cells and then light sensitive cells that register some kind of a direction and then some kind of a refractory globular thing (laughs) that would start creating more intricate ways to understand the way light is coming in the direction and the intensity and all that sort of stuff. It's pretty straightforward. You are fractionally going to be more likely and when you reproduce they're going to be fractionally more likely to continue that process until the allele travels throughout the population and is amplified in it and then Hello. Does that with, uh, you know, thousands of different body systems and eventually you get something that works reasonably well. Uh, I won't, won't say exceptionally well, given what the human body does and how sloppy the freaking thing is, but it's pretty decent. Uh, he talks about the difference between ramian- randomness and cumulative selection. So this is an important point, is that one of those straw men that is constantly used by critics is that it's just completely random. It's all random. So when you do the mathematics, just all these things are completely random. But of course, it's not it's cumulative all the things build on each other when the selection pressures are working on you they're not just randomly choosing whatever characteristic you might have just any it's it selects based on the selection pressures so whatever the circumstances are different characteristics will be everybody knows how evolution works uh, just at least in the abstract and then he talks about using computer models early use of computer models to simulate artificial selection so it'd be like you build in some kind of a, a minor mutation that happens and see how it spreads when you change 
the selective pressures and see how fast it'll spread throughout like a population, how many generations and all that sort of stuff. And apparently Dawkins is pretty adept at computer coding, so who knew? Okay, some criticism. What does Tim Radford have to say from The Guardian? He says that despite Dawkins' combative secular humanism, <laughs> <laughs> Such a quaint time. He had written a patient, often beautiful book from 1986 that begins a generous mood and sustains its generosity to the end. 30 years on, people still read the book, Radford argues, because it is one of the best books ever to address patiently and persuasively the question that has baffled bishops and disconcerted dissenters alike. How did nature achieve its astonishing complexity and variety? So as I've said, and I'm just... Like, I'm feeling a tad exhausted. It's It seems like such a, a weird retread. I didn't major in biology. I didn't get a PhD in biology. Uh, I haven't been studying this for a decade, and it, it seems so weird to have to defend it on such a small scale. And obviously that's what the book's doing, and I'm just reviewing the book, but it's still, like, it's really disconcerting. As I'm talking about it, as I'm, like, trying to describe things, it's just like, the basics are so easy, and the concept itself is so powerful, and it's so well supported by every possible line of evidence, it's incredibly disconcerting that people allow themselves to be taken in by individual personal emotional interests and just ignore things that are too complex not even too complex for them it's i mean it's massively complex but it's it's not about the validity of the claim it's not about reality it's just about their personal emotional interests and it just it sucks <laughs> And it's so funny, again, it seems quaint, people being religious and them saying, okay, well, we have to reject this because of uh, this particular dogma. You know, obviously a lot of religious people just nerfed their religion so they could accept all this stuff, but a lot of people didn't. So it's just, it's so weird. I picked this dogma that I have to be wedded to, so I'm going to reject all this stuff that makes sense. And there's something that was just, I don't know, soul-crushing. <laughs> about the whole idea as I was trying to go through explanations for this. Like, there's a wealth of fascinating information in this concept and the way that we developed and how we are now and, and what it means for all the other organisms on the planet, what it means for moral values to place on different organisms and different behaviors and et cetera, et cetera. And yet... Some dopey idiot is just going to say, why are there still monkeys or something like that? You know, it's, I mean, I can only do my, my tiny fractional part here. I'm not even going to leave that. There are still monkeys because we share a common ancestor uh, with the other great apes. Didn't evolve from the great apes. Not only that, but philosophically, that'd be like asking, why are there Europeans when there are Americans? When I think about it, I think out of the seven something billion people on the planet, there isn't a single person that there isn't a single person that would argue that evolution is wrong because there are still monkeys. I don't think that there's a person like that on the planet, but I'm always proven wrong at some point. I can't believe that there's somebody that would sincerely say that, but maybe that's just for my Western perch. That was a downer. All right, uh, so <laughs> another critic in the New York Times, Michael Gislin. Yeah, sure. Said, in The Blind Watchmaker, Mr. Dawkins succeeds admirably in showing how natural selection allows biologists to dispense with such, no such notions as purpose and design, and he does so in a manner readily intelligible to the modern reader. Okay, thanks, Mike. So what are the things that stuck out to me? He talked about bats. 
batch of cool and how complex echolocation is. There is something about, so coming into this, it was like, I heard about this really cool lecture. And so, you know, you get to the lecture and about 15 minutes in, you realize you've kind of heard everything that you need to hear. And, but now you awkwardly have to sit there and then you want, you're going to like pretend you're going to the bathroom, but you put your coat down on the other seat. So people will see you picking up your coat and they'll be like, Oh no, he's definitely leaving. So you just think maybe I'll just leave the coat, <laughs> pick it up from lost and found or something. And it's just, it's like that. That's what reading the book was kind of like i'm sure it was enthralling in 1986 but to its credit i think we've advanced pretty significantly since the computer model discussion was great he went into some detail i can't remember the details now but he went into some detail about it and it was really cool just learning about kind of the early efforts to model these things and it's incredible to think about what they must be doing now he talked about punctuated equilibrium versus gradualism which is another one of those canards where people would say that punctuated equilibrium is is not evolution i remember hearing somebody in, in a debate say this like how do you live with yourself punctuated equilibrium just means that there were stable periods for an extended period of time and then there were rapid pockets of evolution that were caused by rapid changes in the climate or whatever else so it's not antithetical to evolution it's just a different version of it gradualism says it's very gradual over time and obviously it's going to be a mix of those two things depending on the circumstances uh he talked about oh yeah he brought up this really interesting idea about discriminating against chimpanzees and when that shoe was going to fall <laughs> you know we already talked about protecting animals to some degree i still eat them they're delicious but we do talk about protecting them. And at some point, we're going to have fake meat. But he takes another step and talks about, okay, when do we give chimpanzees rights? You know, when are they smart enough that we say that they get to decide their own way in the world? <laughs> you know, they can get a job, really simple jobs or something like that. And then when we talk about discriminating against them and whether they can vote and all, all sorts of other stuff. So that's an interesting idea. I mean, at some point, obviously, whenever I see a video of a chimpanzee doing something like they were playing this one game it was like a number game where you have to remember where the numbers were or something like that it blows me away i'm just like i cannot believe that a non-human primate can do that kind of stuff <laughs> another idea he talked about taking for granted human rights and that is a very important philosophical understanding to have is that human rights aren't something that are descended from on high and even if they were i mean we'd be in the exact same position because we all have to agree that we're going to accept x human rights you know and not accept other human rights and, and there have to be enough people with enough force behind them to be able to enforce those things uh, you know or enough people who just agree to it and they're all going to follow it but it's not something it's not something that's just there out there in the ether reified for us to all mark marvel at it's something we have to agree to and perpetuate in and all that what are some of my thoughts uh it was it was an excellent exploration of the underpinnings of evolution that's a sentence i wrote here so so it was, it was pretty good like i said it just just goes it goes on uh it attacks Paley's argument, which I absolutely appreciate. It's amazing how much sophistry is just built into that one deal. It's the teleological argument. Everybody hopefully knows what this is, but just for a quick recap. This says that, you know, if you're walking down a beach and you find a watch in the sand, then you pick up the watch and then you assume that the watch had a designer because it's too complex to have just formed by itself. This is one of the worst arguments in history. It refutes its itself internally. I mean, ontological argument is pretty terrible, but it's, it's one of those you have to think about it a bit to be able to get this. But this one internally, it refutes itself. So the way... <laughs> 
This is what silver is. The way that you determine that the watch is complex is by comparing it to the sand. That's that's where you found it. You compare it to whatever's there and you say, okay, this is complex. It must be designed. The sand is not complex because I'm comparing it to that. So that must not be designed. So if the argument was that if you find a watch, then you must say that it had a designer, but you find sand and you say it doesn't have a designer, then it would be internally consistent, but it most certainly is not. The argument is that because you can find a watch against sand and say that it must be designed, that therefore the entire universe was designed. That refutes itself internally. You need an example of non-design to be able to say that something is designed, and you can't. It becomes a tautology. Everything in the universe is designed, so therefore you don't even have an understanding what design actually means. The big question is, what would a, a non-designed universe look like? What would it look like? And I, I've talked to apologists, and I always end up on that line, and they never have an answer. They can't even fathom an answer. That's not hubris. That's because there is no answer. It doesn't make any sense. There's nothing that you could possibly say that would suggest this is an undesigned universe. That's why this entire argument is complete sophistry. You have to have an example of non-design and design to be able to make this argument. And they don't. They want to say that everything designed. Okay, now that I got through that, thank you. Thank you for listening. Some short quotes. Quote, evolution has no long-term goal. There is no long-distance target, no final perfection to serve as a criterion for selection. Although human vanity cherishes the absurd notion that our species is the final goal of evolution. End quote. So yeah, that's important concept to understand related to it. Uh, another quote. The bishop goes on to the human eye, asking rhetorically, and with the implication there is no answer. How could an organ so complex evolve? This is not an argument. It is simply an affirmation of incredulity. End quote. And I can't remember if he coined this. Logical fallacy of personal incredulity. <laughs> I know this definitely came up around this whole everything related to, you know, religion versus science and all that. Just because you are personally incredulous, it does not an argument make. All right, and the other quotes I have here are massive, so I'm not going to read them. But whatever the case, it's uh, this one's from 1986. I think the selfish gene was my favorite of the Dawkins works. Said the other one seemed a tad antiquated now, wherein it was making the arguments it needed to make for the time, but now it's like we're far behind. Even people who still maintain their ludicrous positions, uh, they should have heard all these things already by now. But anyway, that's the blind watchmaker, and that is number nine on the Sam Harris reading list, and now we're going to be speeding up on that one because I've got kind of a method down to get through a lot of these books. So we're going to be speeding up and I'm going to be picking the ones that are most interesting to me first and then going back and filling in the other ones. So that's 186 books. Got the other one, the best 100 books that's going on as well. I've got some books peppered in that I've, I've just been reading in general for various reasons. And then in addition, I've got, you know, all the basic stuff, just the, the basic news stuff. So hopefully, hopefully the nice uh, smattering is kind of a good broad thing. You can pick the ones you want to listen to or listen to all of them and really broaden the kinds of things you're being exposed to. But whatever. Thank you very much for listening. Okay, bye. Bye.